This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we study, continue to study through Matthew this morning, through the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that you may help us to understand the significance of what our Lord is teaching, understand it correctly, and apply it in our lives. We know that as we walk by God the Holy Spirit, that he illuminates our mind to the understanding of Scripture, helps us to see how to apply it. It is in our walk with the Lord, I mean, our walk with the Holy Spirit, that God the Holy Spirit strengthens us through your word and enables us to understand the issues of life from your perspective. Now, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking during this time as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 5, looking at Matthew 5, 21 to 26. The issue that we see here is that Jesus is talking about two different interpretations of the Mosaic Law. He's going to challenge the interpretation of the Pharisees, an interpretation that is somewhat shallow, somewhat superficial. And in, in contrast to it, he is going to present a divine viewpoint understanding of the mandates, the prohibitions, and the positive commands that are in the Mosaic Law. What had happened over the history of Israel since their return from uh, captivity in Babylon is that a desire sprang up among the religious leaders to figure out some way to keep the people from violating the Mosaic Law. It was their violation of the Mosaic Law specifically in the area of idolatry, as they understood it, that led to the, their expulsion from the land in divine discipline in 586 B.C. So some 100 or 200 years after their return from Babylon, in 530, which began in 538, especially during the period from about 250 B.C. up until the time of Christ, you had the development of what came to be known as Second Temple Judaism, Pharisaical theology or rabbinical theology. And what they, their basic approach was that if there are 613 commandments in the Mosaic law, that in order to protect those, those 613 commandments from, from violation, they would come up with various other commands, other principles that if they weren't violated, 
then those inner 613 commandments would not be violated. And so they began to construct, as it were, by analogy, a fence of commands around the Mosaic law. Now, this first fence had been constructed under Second Temple Judaism. A second fence is going to be constructed through Mishnaic uh, theology and Talmudic theology in the uh, period after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So we're just thinking about uh, the development of Second Temple, uh, Second Temple Judaism. So in one sense, the Pharisees were multiplying commandments. And so in one sense, they are expanding on the commandments, giving people more and more uh, regulations so that they could maintain a certain, quote, purity or righteousness, unquote. The problem is that that the righteousness that they are promoting, even though they have more and more commandments, is really a superficial form of righteousness, a form of righteousness that that looks merely on the outside, on external behavior rather than internal behavior. Jesus challenges that in six contrastive statements, beginning in verse 17 of, uh, of this chapter, or actually the first one he challenges in verse 21, down through the end of the chapter in verse 48. Now, as we look at this, we have to understand the context. The more that I drill down into this particular section, because the Sermon on the Mount is notoriously one of the most difficult passages to understand because on the surface, especially in terms of how some of the terminology has been translated, it appears to either be presenting a work salvation or at other times it appears to indicate that a person is required to have certain perfection before they're saved, or perhaps if they commit certain sins, they can lose their salvation. So we have to understand this context. And as I've been studying this, I realize that, that going back to this, the introduction to this section, we looked at the initial sort of prelude to the sermon, the introduction to the sermon in the Beatitudes, but in this main body of the sermon, there is a second introduction, as it were, that is found in verses 17 through 20. And I've just highlighted a couple of words there that I want to emphasize. As Jesus is about to challenge the rabbinical interpretation of the law, he wants to make it clear up front that he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. He didn't come to destroy. He repeats it a second time. Notice, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, what we see in the uh, in these the six sections is he's showing what the true, genuine fulfillment of the law is in terms of its true application. But he uses this terminology here, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. And then he uses a Similar form of this, uh, similar form of the same word in verse 19 when he says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. Now in verse 17 he uses the word kataluo twice, which means to destroy, to demolish, to annul, to invalidate, to break, to abolish. Those are all various English words that are used to translate this word kataluo. The root verb is luo, 
it is intensified by the addition of this prefix, a preposition, kata. When we get to verse 19, he says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. He uses the root word in the Greek, luo, at that point. But what this does is in terms of the language that Jesus is using, he's showing that verse verse, um, 19 is a direct outgrowth of verse 17. It begins with a therefore, he's drawing a conclusion from what he has said in verses 17 and 18. So 19 is not running off and talking about some other topic. He's continuing along the same line. He says, I didn't come to destroy or abolish this. But in contrast, he says here, gives an example of some who do teach to abolish or to nullify the, the commandments of God. And so there are a couple of things we need to note about verse 19 because understanding verses 19 and 20 helps us to break out the understanding of what Jesus is saying in, in verses 21 down through 48. So in verse 19, he says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I covered this a couple of weeks ago, and just a reminder, Jesus is contrasting two different groups. On the one hand, we have a group that seems to minimize the application of the law. They're trying to reduce it to just something pretty simple and superficial rather than understanding the full significance and import of the commandment. So they are minimalists. And that really is going to be represented by the Pharisees, by the Pharisaical teaching. He's not talking about them individually in terms of their individual uh, salvation status. He's talking about what they are teaching. And so there's one group who is minimalizing the uh, interpretation and the application of these commandments. Now, they're contrasted with another group that is fulfilling the commandment. They are doing and they are teaching the commandments, and they will be called great in the kingdom of God. The first group, because they're minimalizing things, they're really giving people excuses and rationales. We'll see several examples of this as we go through Matthew. They're giving excuses and rationales for why people don't really need to fulfill the law. They really don't need to apply it in its true intent in their own lives. They can they can just skirt around the edges, uh, as it were, and not really uh, obey it in its fullest intent. But I want you to notice here, and this is something that's not always brought out, doesn't always come to our attention, is that he is saying that people in both of these groups are in the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? That means that he's viewing both of them as having an eternal destiny in heaven or in the kingdom of heaven, in the, in the millennial messianic kingdom. So in our language, we would say both groups are viewed here as saved. He's not contrasting a group of those who were saved, who are fulfilling the commandments, versus those who are not saved. The reason I bring that out is because, as I pointed out last week, and we have several visitors here this morning who weren't here last week, and this is a very important, uh, very important study, is that there is a threat 
to his hearers in both uh, verse 22 and in verse 29 that failure to fulfill the law puts them in jeopardy of hell. That is how it is translated. But as I pointed out in our study last week, the original Greek is the word Gehenna, which is a transliteration from the Hebrew Gehinom, which literally means the Valley of Hinnom. It is an interpretive decision to say that that is hell. But the Valley of Hinnom, as we looked last time, doesn't refer in the Old Testament to an eternal judgment for eternal damnation. It refers to an act of God in time, in history, where he brought divine discipline upon the nation of of Judah uh, for their disobedience and for their idolatry, specifically the idolatry of worshiping Moloch, where they would sacrifice their children in the fires of Moloch. They were, it was child sacrifice in a horrible, horrible way where they were immolating them on this fiery sacrifice. So that has come to be understood in a lot of Christian tradition to be a, a word that, that is a symbolic of eternal damnation in the lake of fire. If that were so, then the contrast here would be between unbelievers and believers. What I'm simply pointing out is contextually, verse 19 is not contrasting believers with unbelievers. It's contrasting two different kinds of believers, those who are least in the kingdom, those who are great in the kingdom. So contextually, just from verse 19, we're talking about uh, about believers. Now, in verse 20, as I pointed out, Jesus goes on to say, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's pointing out here is that the Pharisees are teaching this kind of superficial righteousness, not a righteousness that we need to get into heaven. See, the phrase enter the kingdom of heaven is often understood to mean entering heaven. And as I pointed out, looking at passages like Acts 14.22, where the Apostle Paul is said to be teaching and reminding the disciples that he had already converted when he had previously gone through Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. He's reminding them, and he says it is through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if he's talking about getting to heaven or getting saved from, so that we don't go to the lake of fire as our eternal destiny, then he's saying you're saved by going through many persecutions. That would be a work salvation. That is a contradiction of numerous passages in Scripture which teach that we are saved by uh, grace through faith that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So in Acts 14.22, it's very clear that entering entering the kingdom of God is not the same as just getting saved, just being justified, phase one salvation. It is talking about the fullness of our experience in our resurrection bodies when we are ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ during the messianic kingdom. 
So that means that the righteousness that is covered in verse 20 is an experiential righteousness. This is what was talked about in the Mosaic Law, is how a saved, regenerate, redeemed nation coming out of Egypt was to live and to have experiential righteousness so that they would be a light to the nations. That was the role and purpose of saving Israel and setting them apart as a uh, nation to God in the Old Testament. But when they fail to live a righteous life, what was the punishment? They would be removed from the land. But if they lived in the land in obedience, God would bless them and richly prosper them in the land. So the kind of righteousness that's covered uh, in verse 20 has to do with this experiential righteousness. Now, this was a major issue in the Old Testament, I mean, in the New Testament time between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is indicated in a quote I have here from Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who'd been a general in the Jewish army, was defeated by the Romans, and he surrendered. Uh, Most of the others were killed. He survived, and he basically became a a slave to the house of of Titus and Vespasian uh, and Titus, and uh, under their sponsorship, During that time, he wrote a defense of Jewish history and a defense of the Jewish position during the uh, called the Antiquities of the Jews and the Wars of the Jews. But from Antiquities of the Jews, he wrote, what I would now explain is this, that the Pharisees have delivered to the people a great many observances by succession from their fathers. See, that's talking about this oral law of tradition that had become the accepted interpretation of the Mosaic Law. A great many observances by succession from their fathers which are not written in the law of Moses. And for that reason, it is that the Sadducees, see, Josephus is, is, is uh, self-aggrandizing here because he was a Sadducee. Uh, for this reason, the Sadducees reject them. While the Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich, it was just the wealthy aristocracy that made up the party of the Sadducees. But the Pharisees had the multitude on their side, but about these two sects and that of the Essenes, I have treated accurately in the second book of Jewish affairs. So he tells us that there's this, this, this tradition, this oral law from the Pharisees that they're using as the standard accepted interpretation of the, uh, of the Old Testament, of Old Testament law. And so in verse 21, Jesus begins and he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. See, he's going to use this formula six times. You have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. And he's referring to this body of, of, of oral tradition that the Pharisees have been teaching. And he is going to contrast it with his own interpretation, which begins in verse 22 when he says, but I say to you. Now, what happens is the Pharisees are minimalizing the law. They are saying that, that, that uh, all you need to do is avoid the f- literal, physical act of murder, and you're okay. It doesn't matter whatever mental attitude sins are associated with it or anything else. It's just that literal, physical act of murder that is, that is wrong. They have forgotten the point, and this is one of the points that is necessary to understand this interpretation. As Jesus, as Jesus' half-brother in his humanity, uh, James, who wrote the epistle of James, says in James 2.10, 
for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. This is what Jesus is going to point out, is that no matter how minor, no matter how least the, king, the, the commandment is, if you violate it in the most uh, simple, unobtrusive white lie, you're still guilty of violating the entire law. That, that when we look at this from the perspective of God's justice, we see that all sin violates God's justice and God's righteousness, whether it is a relatively minor abridgment of the law, whether it's just telling some little white lie, whether it is having a, a, an unspoken thought of anger or jealousy that's never brought out into the open, whatever it may be, that is as much a violation of the law and renders us just as guilty before God as if we have sacrificed our children uh, on the arms, uh, the fiery arms of Moloch that in terms of the righteousness of God, one violates God's law just as much as the other. Just think about the original sin of Adam and Eve. What did they do? Did they commit genocide? Were they racist? Uh, did, they, uh, did they somehow reject whatever the uh, popular myth of the day was? Maybe they didn't believe in global warming. You know, whatever it was. Were those their sins? No. Their sin was that they ate a piece of fruit. Now, none of that wouldn't make any of our lists of the ten worst sins, but it was a disobedience to the commandment of God. And it was that innocuous sin of eating a piece of fruit in disobedience to God that brought all of the horrors of war and famine and disease and suffering into the human race. So that what Jesus is pointing out here is that it's not just the overt sin. It is the mental attitude sins that give, uh, that, that produce the overt sin that are the real danger. So he says, representing their oral tradition, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, the word judgment there is simply the word indicating a judgment or a verdict. It remains to be seen whether this is a divine judgment or a, the judgment of a human court. Now, the command that Jesus is referencing here is the sixth commandment, Exodus 20:13, you shall not murder. The old King James translated it, you shall not kill, and that has led to a lot of er erroneous application because the word in the Hebrew, ratzach, does not mean just simply to kill. It refers to homicide. It refers to manslaughter. It refers to un the unauthorized taking of the law. That is unauthorized by the Mosaic law. For the Mosaic law authorizes the taking of human life in certain circumstances. For example, in a war, it is authorized to take the life of the enemy. That is legal in the Mosaic law. It is legal to take the life of someone who is seeking to take your life. Self-defense is grounded 
in the Mosaic Law and in the Judeo-Christian heritage. That's the foundation for the Second Amendment in our Bill of Rights. It's a, it doesn't give us the right to bear arms. It recognizes that we already have the right to bear arms and that that right to bear arms shall not be abridged by any act of Congress. That is grounded in the principle of self-defense, which has its root not just in the Mosaic Law, but it, it. But before the Mosaic Law, it was legitimate to take the life of someone in self-defense. Also, uh, it doesn't um, prohibit execution in capital crimes. Execution for those who commit capital murder was grounded in the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, where God said, that those who take life, those who shed blood, they themselves shall have their blood shed. So the the Noahic covenant not only promises that God will never again destroy the earth by water, it also uh, authorizes the use of capital punishment. And so when we see a rainbow, that should remind us not only that God is not going to destroy the earth by fire again, but that we are to be executing capital criminals on a regular basis in the execution of justice. And people say, well, what about those who are unjustly condemned? That's real simple. We're dealing with the principle here. We're dealing with the fact that God is omniscient. And don't you think that God knew that, that there would be court cases where uh, innocent people were wrongly convicted? And yet God, in his omniscience and wisdom, still delegated the authority to take human life in capital crimes so that individual cases that are tragic are not worthy of negating the law without committing blasphemy against the basic character and holiness of God. Now, Jesus is going to contrast the divine viewpoint here in verse 22. He says, but I say to you, emphasizing his own authority, this is one of the signs in Scripture that Jesus understood that he was fully God. This is one of the things that we're told here impressed the crowd because no one spoke with the authority that Jesus spoke. He said, this is what you've heard the Pharisees say, but I say to you, he is setting himself up as a, as an absolute authority, speaking as if he is God himself, and he is. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, okay, without a just cause, there is a justifiable anger, but Jesus is not dealing with that. He's dealing with an unjustifiable anger, and he says, first of all, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And then second, he says, whoever says to his brother, Racha, which is an Aramaic term of, it's an insult, it's a term of derision. It's basically saying you're an idiot, you're an empty-headed fool, you're a blockhead. Uh, you can add your own favorite epithet if you want to translate it a little more harshly. But it was a harsh statement. He says, if you say to your brother, Rakha, you shall be in danger of the council. The word there is Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you fool... The word here is moros, where we get our word moron, or our term sophomore, which refers to a wise fool. Uh, Whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. 
Now, it doesn't say hellfire in, in the Greek. It says the Gehenna of fire. So last time we looked at that, we'll look at it again. You're going to need to hear me go through that probably four or five more times to get it right because that's not what appears in most, I would say 98% of Bible translations, uh, probably all translations, and 98% of, of Bible dictionaries, commentaries. Uh, it's amazing how many people, as I've spent more and more time this last week reading and reading and reading upon this, is how many people assert that this is what it means with no evidence whatsoever. And then there are those who make contention such as Gehenna was, began to be used as a, um, as a term for eternal damnation during the intertestamental period as indicated by a group of writings called the Pseudepigrapha. Trouble is that in 80% of the references that are used to support that contention, those texts that are cited don't even use the word Gehenna. And the few that do, there's only about three that actually use the word Gehenna, uh, they were probably written at much later after the Christian era and were influenced by a, by a post-Christian uh, second or third century distortion than they were by, by, uh, by indicating a, a mid uh, or, or an intertestamental belief that would have been commonly shared with the, uh, with, with the disciples and with the Jews when Jesus was talking. What I mean by that is there's no evidence, none, that between the use of the term Valley of Enom in Jeremiah in the Old Testament and the time of Christ, there's no evidence to really support the contention that it had changed its meaning from the historical meaning of a place of judgment, spiritual failure, and divine discipline and the idea of eternal damnation. There's no support for that. But people cite things and they say things, but they're just reading a preconceived notion into the evidence. They're not letting the evidence speak for themselves. So what we see here is three different situations. Now, you will also hear, and somebody asked me this last time, isn't there a a gradation here uh, going through different levels of, of judgment. And in fact, you will, you can read in some sources that this refers to different levels of human adjudication. That in the first case, there's danger of the judgment. This would be a lower court reading. Uh, whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. This was interpreted by some to be the Sanhedrin. And then the final one is related, of course, in, in all views to divine discipline from the Supreme Court of Heaven. However, if we look at this, in the first case, we have someone who's angry, just a mental attitude sin, angry with a brother without a cause. No human court can ascertain the mental attitude state of an individual. No human court punishes for your mental attitude except maybe in some egregious totalitarian situation. So I would argue that none of these are related to human courts. They're all talking about divine judgment. On the first case, you have someone who's angry with a brother without a cause, and he's in danger of the judgment. He's in danger of judgment from God. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, that you are an empty-headed idiot, sort of reminds me of things I've been guilty of saying when I've been driving, but that's another story. <laughs> Shall be in danger of the council. Now, this isn't just, there's not just a human Sanhedrin. Uh, 
But there's also the thought of a ultimate council in the heavens, the council of God, the Trinity, in terms of, and that term Sanhedrin would refer to the council of heaven. And then the third, whoever says you fool shall be in danger of the Gehenna of fire. So what we see here is that Jesus says, if you have a mental attitude, sin of hatred or anger toward a brother, that is just as much a violation of the law and God's righteousness as murder, even the murder of children in child sacrifice. So even if the Pharisees have minimalized this, uh, that is wrong. That if they're guilty of the smallest violation of the law, the least of the commandments, you're guilty of the whole law. So what Jesus is saying is, if you're trying to avoid breaking the law, you have to keep the law in its fullest extent. Otherwise, no matter what you've done that's a violation of the law, no matter how small it is, you're still worthy of divine judgment, just like what happened to Judah from the worst sins they committed in the Old Testament, which led to their destruction in 586 B.C., And what we're seeing here is perhaps a foreshadowing or hint that if you don't get it right now by repenting and, and accepting Jesus as the Messiah and preparing for the Messianic kingdom, that judge, another judgment like the one in 586 BC will come. And that, of course, is what happened in the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus is saying to break the smallest law makes you guilty of breaking the whole law. And therefore, he is saying as lawbreakers, even if it's minimalist, as lawbreakers, you're no different from those in ancient Judah. The Jews of Jesus' day were in danger of divine judgment personally and corporately, just as the Jews of Jeremiah's day were judged by God in the Valley of Hinnom. And as I pointed out last time, the Valley of Hinnom was located to the south and west in this lower area below the city of David, south of the Dung Gate, which was in the uh, south end of the city, uh, the old city of David, uh, not the modern location, which is up close to the temple wall, but this would have been uh, during the period uh, of, the second, of, of the first temple. It was far to the, far to the south. And it was there that Judah committed sins by committing child sacrifice. This pictured the place of their greatest spiritual failure and also, according to Jeremiah 7, 31 and 32, where God judged the nation that not only had they sacrificed and killed their children in that valley, but God said, I'm going to bring judgment on you so that when the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and slaughter slaughter you there, your bodies, because of your sin, your bodies will be buried in the same location that those infants were buried. So this became known as a site where uh, where the, the worm lived. And the word, word there for worm is maggot. It became a burial site. It wasn't far from there. Somebody else asked me this last week. It wasn't far from there that we believe that the potter's field was located, which is where uh, Judas was buried, but there's not really a connection made there. It's just a close geographical, uh, ge- close geographical vicinity. So that uh, the Valley of Hinnom was not used in the Old Testament as a reference to eternal condemnation, uh, but as a place of divine discipline on the nation of Israel for their spiritual failure. And this is what Jesus is warning. If you don't 
Apply the law in its fullness. If you don't fulfill the law, you won't have the kind of righteousness necessary for the kingdom, and instead of the kingdom coming in, there will be a divine discipline again. He's not threatening eternal condemnation. He's threatening temporal divine discipline. Now, as we go on into the next verse, or, or just one more statement here, when it talks about a fool, Jesus calls the uh, Pharisees fools in Matthew twenty-three seventeen. So some people say, well, isn't Jesus contradicting himself? What he's talking about in, in Matthew five twenty-two is insulting somebody out of anger, where it is motivated by a mental attitude sin. God calls those who are apostates, those who have rejected truth, he calls them fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so Jesus uses the term fool not out of a personal uh, mental attitude sin of anger towards the Pharisees, but he is making a theological doctrinal statement that they have divorced themselves from reality by rejecting the truth of God's word, and thus they have become fools who are spiritually blind. He then goes on to describe a uh, couple of examples related to the application of this principle. And this is fairly easy to understand, unlike what we just looked at. The first case is in verses 23 and 24. He says, if you bring your gift to the altar, you're coming to worship God according to the standards of the Mosaic law. And as you approach the temple, you remember that your brother has something against you. You've given your brother a cause for offense, well, what you need to do then is to leave your gift there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is a principle we've studied quite a bit recently that we are to seek peace with all people, that we are to make sure that not only do we have a right relationship, a fellowship with God, but that we maintain a horizontal fellowship with those around us, that, as Paul says, if at all possible, we should seek peace with all men. And so this is a picture of the fact that we need to be, if we are going to worship God, and we would apply it to the church age if we're going to walk by the Spirit, then we need to make sure that we are not uh, giving a cause of offense to those around us, if at all possible. Some people just walk around, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, they just walk around looking for reasons to be offended. The Pharisees were like that. They just looked for reasons to be offended. Well, there's nothing you can do about those kind of people. But there are others where we have created a conflict, and we need to resolve that conflict because as long as that conflict continues, it is a sinful situation. In Matthew 5.25, Jesus goes on to say, Agree with your adversary quickly. This is a uh, slightly different situation, a slightly different circumstance that involves a legal situation. And Jesus is using this to emphasize the importance of making things right quickly, not letting things fester. So he uses the picture of two people walking together to a court where their, dis- where their disagreement would receive a judicial decision. And Jesus is saying, basically, you need to settle your grievance out of court, and the offender needs to remove the occasion for the other person's anger. In other words, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, because once you get before the judge, 
then the decision may go against you. You're going to have to go through a lot of red tape, a lot of complications, a lot of expense. To, you need to settle out of court. Otherwise, the judge may really lower the boom on you. And the application is that from verse 26, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. If you're not going to the Lord to seek forgiveness for sin and you let this continue and fester, then the long-term consequences in terms of divine discipline will be much worse than if you had settled accounts both by resolving the problem with your brother as well as resolving it before God through confession of sin. So the principle that we see in these two examples is the same principle that we have from the Old Testament, Psalm 66, 18, that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. Just because you're a nice person doesn't mean God's going to hear your prayers. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean God's going to hear your prayers. Because if we have sin in our life that is unconfessed, then Scripture is very clear that God will not hear our prayers. There's no guarantee that God will answer our prayers or listen to us or give us a hearing unless we are first in right relation to him. That is why we always begin as a pedagogical tool with confession of sin to remind us of the importance of keeping short accounts. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we're thankful for the fact that we can come together and study your word. We remember that we are saved by grace through faith. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and that by simply trusting in him, we have eternal life. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're not saved by doing right. We are saved by trusting in the one who is perfectly righteous, the righteous sacrifice who paid the penalty for us. But, Father, as redeemed and regenerate believers, we need to live a life of obedience. And it is by through living that life of obedience that we glorify you and that we learn to experience all that you have for us and prepare ourselves for the future kingdom. Father, we pray for those here this morning that may be unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. We pray that they might clearly understand that the issue is not what they've done. The issue is what Christ did. The issue is his payment for sin, that, that by his complete and sufficient payment, we have eternal life simply by trusting in him and him alone. Father, for the rest of us, we need to be reminded that there is a, a mandate upon us that we should live uh, to glorify you, that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through our advance to spiritual maturity, we not only glorify you in time, but we prepare ourselves to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes and establishes his kingdom, that we need to learn to live today in light of eternity. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.